All right, today's scripture comes from Psalm chapter 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Believe it or not, this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> you know, uh, let me just say from the outset, uh, I'm a little bit sick and uh, I've had this persistent cough. I think something's going around because I think a lot of people are sick, uh, I've been hearing. So uh, protect your health. Um, we're going through a series on the Psalms. And this series is going to last us until December. And there's a couple reasons why we're doing this. Uh, first, I want to impress upon you the importance of prayer during this season. And I want to show you also that there are a variety of ways that we can pray, and there are a variety of ways that we can worship. And if you think about the Psalms as a song, basically what we're trying to do in the fall is we're trying to build uh, our own little albums for life. Songs that we can listen to, songs that we can read, songs that we can pray, songs that we can sing uh, to help us cover a variety of human experiences that we experience in a broken world. And, you know, prayer is not uh, something that we simply do when we feel like God is near and when we feel like we're on this spiritual high, but we also need to pray when we feel very spiritually dry and when it feels like God is far away from us. Uh, we need to pray in moments not when we just feel good and feel joyous, but we need to pray in times when we feel sorrow in our heart, and that's what we looked at last week. We need to pray when doubts fill our heart as well, and we need to bring our doubts before God. And perhaps one of the more controversial prayers is the prayer that we need to pray when we're filled with anger in our hearts. Do you pray your anger? And if not, I think the psalm directs us and says that you should at least um, that's what I think it says. Now, if you've never read the psalm before, um, I don't know what you thought about it as it was just being read right now. I imagine you're probably shocked that a psalm like this exists in the Bible. And quite honestly, this is one of those psalms that uh, people probably try to bury a little bit and try to hide a little bit because, you know, Christians are not exactly sure what to do with a psalm like this. Uh, you know, the worship community has been trying to write songs from the psalms. And uh, this one was probably a very challenging song to write. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Peter about it this week. He's like, how do I write a song about this psalm? You know, it's very challenging, of course. And I think in a way, if, if you're a Christian here, uh, you're probably a little bit embarrassed that the psalm is in the Bible. And if a non-Christian were to come and open a Bible and, and see the psalm, you'd be probably a little bit embarrassed that something like this is in the Bible. And in that way, it's, it's a little bit interesting that how similar it is to uh, our own experience with our own anger, when our emotions are raw and when we are filled with anger, we probably don't want people to see us either, right? Because it's a little bit embarrassing. When we're angry, we say things that we might regret. We do things that we might regret. We curse people, insult people. In extreme cases, we might physically hurt people. When we're angry, we make foolish threats. We throw things. We break things. We make poor decisions. 
why would we want anybody to see us in our anger? Especially God, right? In those moments, prayer is the last thing we probably think about. You know, in our culture, that uh, angry label, it's it's interesting because it actually has this dehumanizing, delegitimizing kind of effect. You know, when somebody is labeled as angry, it's almost as though they're incapable of being rational or incapable of being uh, intelligent. And you see this in particular with harmful racial stereotypes. Uh, You have people uh, create the label the angry black man. And the reason why that's a harmful stereotype is it attempts to dehumanize and delegitimize black males. I think there's maybe a a similar phrase uh, pertaining to uh, the Asian man as well, the angry Asian man. And you often hear that label when someone brings up, right, an Asian person brings up racial inequalities, and then all of a sudden, bam, you get that label. Oh, you're just being the angry Asian man. And, uh, you know, a couple years ago, I don't know if it's the case now because... um, Maybe the conversation on race has moved forward a little bit, but you know, a couple years ago, I would I would remember talking to some other Asian guys, and they would just be hesitant to point out racial inequalities uh, in their uh, workplaces, in their organizations, because they didn't want that label of being known as the angry Asian man. And I think they're afraid of that label. Why? Because when you have angry attached to a person or to a group of people. In our culture, it's not a good thing, and what it does is it tends to dismiss the legitimacy of a person or uh, a group of people. And so I think as a result, uh, we probably developed a few responses to our anger that is not exactly uh, the best thing to do. Uh, One thing we might do is we might try to bury our anger. We might try to ignore it. We might try to just live our life hoping that the reason why we're angry will never come back or never happen to us again. Or uh, maybe it comes out in these other forms like passive-aggressive behavior. Or uh, we bury our anger by detaching ourselves from a particular relationship or detach ourselves from the reality of a situation. You know, I had this professor, and he would tell a story about, uh, I guess when he was like a young, a young man, um, he would have a particularly long and draining day at work, and he, he used to be a, a mental health counselor. And... Uh, so that could be a, a very emotionally draining job. And he would come home, and all he wanted to do was relax. So he would uh, get a magazine, he would lie down on the couch, and he would, he would start reading that magazine. And then his wife would come, who also had a long day at home, taking care of young children, would see him lying down and say in a very not-so-friendly tone, you know, it would be nice to have some help doing some of the cleaning around here. And if you're not married, you should probably know that that's a common situation, and that's actually where a lot of fights will probably begin. And in his mind, he's thinking, you know, if you only knew the type of day that I had, uh, you would let me just rest. Give me get five, ten minutes just to rest on this couch. Can't you just let me have a few moments to myself? Uh, couldn't you have said that in a less judgmental tone? And rather than responding to his wife in that way, what he decided to do is he took the magazine and he just brought it closer to his face so that he couldn't visibly see his wife anymore. And uh, as he re- was reflecting upon that, you know, it's not exactly an angry emotional outburst, but it's an, it's an issue with anger. It's his response. He's trying to bury it. He's trying to ignore it. He is trying to kind of uh, live in this alternate universe in this magazine that he is reading. You know, other, another way I think that we deal with our anger is... Uh, we, we probably distance our anger from ourselves as people. So after an angry outburst, you often hear people say, you know, man, I don't know who that was, but that, that wasn't me. Or we say, uh, I don't know what came over me, as if anger is something that, right, it's like a force that comes over us. 
And uh, I think there's also an attempt to distance our anger from ourselves um, in, in just the language that we use. What, what do we do when people have anger issues? We send them to anger management, as if anger is like this outside force that we need to manage, and it's not a part of who we are, and it's not something that is within us. And these are just, again, a few of the ways in which we, we tend to han handle our anger. And you know, most of the time when we do display our anger, uh, it's, not, it's not good. And the reason it's not good is just a very simple answer because there's sin in our heart. That means that when we are angry, we are either too angry or our anger becomes misdirected or our anger leads to sinful responses and sinful actions. Uh, but at the same time, so we have all of these negative things pertaining to anger. Uh, what's also important to remember is this. Anger in and of itself is not inherently evil or inherently wicked. It, it maybe becomes evil and becomes wicked because uh, of our sinful hearts. But anger in and of itself is not a sinful thing. And the reason we can say that confidently is because God is an angry God. Now, God is an angry God. Our culture, I don't think, likes to hear that. And, you know, as we think about anger, trying to uh, think about, you know, our sinful experiences with anger and the fact that God is an angry God probably tells us at least that we need a more nuanced understanding of what anger actually is. You know, uh, fundamentalist Christian types... Uh, have probably focused too much on the wrath of God and the anger of God and tried to use it to kind of scare people into uh, salvation and say, you know, God is going to judge you and God is going to send you to hell, therefore repent, right? It's too much of a, maybe not enough uh, emphasis on the grace and the love of God. But, you know, conversely, um, probably modern, Western, more uh, liberal folk uh, don't focus on the anger or the wrath of God enough, and it's all about grace, and it's all about love, and it's like, oh, God's going to accept everything, God's going to tolerate everything. You know, there's this mainline Christian denomination, and I, I don't know if you know that song, In Christ Alone, but there's this line in that hymn uh, where it says, the wrath of God was satisfied, and they found that line to be very offensive, and so they wanted to change it. And they wanted to change it to, the love of God was magnified. And they proposed it to the, uh, the original writers and said, you know, would you be okay if we changed this line? And the original writer said, no, that's a very important line in terms of what we understand the gospel to be. And so they ended up not, not using that song at all and saying, you know, we can't use that song in our hymnal. Uh, you know, a lot of people are uncomfortable with this idea of the anger, the wrath of God. And we might want to ask ourselves, why is it something that's so uncomfortable? I think part of the reason might be attributed to the fact that we, we've lost a sense of holiness, uh, the holiness of God, and so we've kind of made God to fit into our sensibilities rather than adjusting our sensibilities to fit into his. But on a more practical level, I think maybe when we think about the anger or the wrath of God, we probably connect it to our own human experience of anger or wrath. And therefore, when we think of anger, we probably think about maybe some kind of uncontrolled blind rage because that is how we might experience it as humans. But it would be a mistake to try to understand God's anger through the lens of the human experience because the human experience is filled with sin. You know, God is actually characterized as one not who is quick to anger, but one who is slow to anger, which means he is not like one of those people that you have to tiptoe around because, oh, if you do something wrong, he might explode at any moment. But that also doesn't mean that he's not a God who never shows his anger. You know, there are moments where he has to be angry because there is great 
evil and great sin in the world. You know, as a parent, I find myself uh, repeating things at least 10 times to my uh, oldest daughter. Um, and I think, I don't know if she hears me or if she just is ignoring me over and over and over again, but there are moments where I have to demonstrate my displeasure and I have to demonstrate my anger. I'll give you an example. If she's like running around in the street and there's cars around, I have to show her that I'm angry that she's not listening to me because that's not safe to do, right? That's a serious moment. You cannot just run in, into the street on your own. And so I display, display anger. And you know, in that way, uh, anger can be connected to love. And anger can presuppose love, which we'll look at a little bit later. When we think about anger, uh, what is anger at its most foundational level? Uh, very simply, anger means that you are against something. You're against something. When you're angry because you've been blamed for something that wasn't your fault, you're against injustice. When you're angry because a friend is an hour late for dinner and didn't bother to call you or to text you, it means you're against wasting your own time. You're against inconsideration. When you're angry that the trains are delayed, you're against being late, maybe. You're against inconvenience. You know, at the most basic level, anger means that you are against that. And so when God is angry, what is he against? Well, he's against sin. He's against idolatry. He's against all kinds of evils and injustice, things that have always been bad for his people. So as we begin to look at the psalm, I think what sets it apart from all of uh, many of the other psalms in the book of Psalms is uh, it takes place in a very specific historical context here. Uh, it's probably written by one of the temple musicians, and this temple musician begins by saying, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remember Zion. And here we get a hint of what uh, the psalm is talking about. You know, there's a very traumatic period in the history of Israel known as the period of exile. It's almost impossible to really understand a, a large chunk of the Old Testament if you don't understand what happened during the exile. And you can read about it in places like in Second Kings, but it began with King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a king of Babylon, and he came in and he sieged Jerusalem. He attacked Jerusalem. He defiled the temple. He enslaved thousands of skilled people and exiled them to a foreign land into Babylon. And the people that he let remain in Jerusalem were only the poorest people. And uh, in some ways, that doesn't really do uh, much justice to the horror of the siege that the people of uh, Israel, or maybe more specifically, the people of Judah experienced during that time. You know, the most shocking verse in, in our text is the last verse, and it says, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. And commentators point out that that is probably a response to what the Babylonians did to their little ones during the siege. And the depth of evil that humans can perpetuate is very, very horrifying. Uh, in preparation for this uh, mission trip that we took this summer, you know, we, we were asked to read a book about uh, the West and about China in Africa. And this book was about how Western civilization uh, really decimated uh, the P Africans, uh, all, all these countries in Africa, how the West exploited Africans for their rich natural resources. And some of the stories of injustice in, in that book perpetuated by Westerners is, is pretty horrifying. Uh, for example, you know, when Belgium colonized the Congo, uh, it says they killed an estimated 10 to 12 million Congolese people. 10 to 12 million. 
And uh, the very next sentence, the author points out what I was thinking. You know, those figures are, are similar to that of the Holocaust. And my next thought was, why have I never heard of this, right? Why is this not news that I've, I've, I've never heard about? That's, that's horrifying. How would you react to Belgium if you were a person from Congo? In our own country, horrifying stories about white slave owners and how uh, black slaves were treated. Uh, I read this other book a couple years ago by a guy named Andrew Del Banco talking about the death of Satan, and he recalled a story about how white slave owners would make their black slaves eat feces uh, just to simply humiliate them. Uh, I had to put the book down. That was how do you how do you respond to something like that? that's disgusting? What if you were one of those black slaves? How would you feel and respond to a white slave owner who did that to you? You know, one of the commentators that uh, named Walter Brueggemann, um, he points out that a psalm like this, you can only understand it and you can really value it if you are someone who has experienced some kind of brutal uh, oppression. And he writes, this is what he says, the psalm might be an embarrassment to bourgeois folk who have never lost that much, been abused that much, or hoped that much. But such a statement is not embarrassing to those who have been marginalized long enough. And perhaps what we ought to think about is maybe we don't quite understand a psalm like this because we haven't exactly experienced the same kind of brutalization and oppression that other people in the world have experienced that the kind of anger that we've experienced uh, compares nothing to the kind of anger that other people uh, have who have been, uh, you know, basically brutalized. The writer of the psalm is probably a musician. His captors, what are they doing to him? They're taunting him. Think, play your songs, right? Play your songs of Zion. Songs of Zion, you know what they were about? They were about God's provision. They are about God's protection over his people. Now, in their situation, it seems like maybe God hasn't provided for them. Maybe God hasn't protected them. And they're saying, come on, come on, sing. Play those songs of Zion that you uh, are so used to singing. Where, and that's their way of saying, come on, where is your God now? Right? Where, is, where is your protection now? And even though they're being taunted like that, their response is what? To commit themselves even deeper to the Lord. And they say, if I forget Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill and let my tongue stick to the root of my mouth. It's essentially self-malediction. They're saying, if I forget Jerusalem, may I never play music again? May I never sing again? And in spite of their current circumstances, right? and it does look like, if you're in that situation, it does look like God maybe have abandoned you. Where is he? Why is he allowing this to happen? And yet they want to commit themselves even deeper to trusting in the Lord. And they say, if I forget Jerusalem, if I forget the temple, if I forget Worship the presence of God. May these things happen to me. Now, when we get to verse 7, uh, I think here's where we see this raw, hot anger. And they ask God to remember what the Edomites did, and you get more detail about what the Edomites did in uh, Obadiah. But they basically disgraced the people in Jerusalem, and they encouraged the Babylonians and said, tear down the foundations in Jerusalem. And so they have this anger towards the Edomites, and then this anger becomes directed towards the Babylonians in verses 8 to 9. And the Babylonians did the most damage to them during the siege in Jerusalem. 
Uh, as I said before, many people were enslaved, many were killed, people were decimated, their dignity, their humanity, their identity was stripped from them. And the question for us is, okay, so as Christians, what do we do with this? Right? What do we do with a psalm like this? Well, I think the first thing we should know is we, we should deny our anger. Uh, we shouldn't even deny that there are probably good reasons to be angry, especially when we think about a lot of the injustices in the world. But nor, I don't, I don't think the psalm is calling us to act upon our anger through violence or uh, seeking our own forms of vengeance. I think what the psalm is actually doing is it's directing us to, to pray our anger. Why? Because praying our anger is actually a great expression or act of faith. Many commentators point out that, you know, this psalm is not saying, you know, I'm going to take action and I'm going to repay my oppressors. Uh, what this psalm is actually doing is it's entrusting God to be the ultimate judge. In the Old Testament, you have this principle of justice that's summarized an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. That's, that's the very definition of justice in the Old Testament. And therefore, in verse 9, uh, it's kind of saying, you know, since the Babylonians did this to us, may this happen to them as well. May justice, perfect justice, be met. And we oftentimes know that it takes faith to entrust the things that we love to God. But again, Walter Brueggemann says this, it is an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious hatred to God, knowing that they will be taken seriously. In other words, he's saying this, that because God is righteous, because God is just, we have to trust that he is going to deal righteously with all the evil and all the injustices in the world, that there will be a day where he will make right all things that are wrong. You know, I mentioned that God is an angry God. And people often think, you know, if you read the, the entire Bible, uh, I hear this a lot, but people will say, you know, when I read the Old Testament, it seems like God is so angry. But then when I read the New Testament, uh, God is so gracious. Why is God so different in the Old Testament and in the New Testament? And uh, I usually disagree with that assessment. I say, well, you know, there's a lot of places in the Old Testament where God is actually very gracious. But then I'll say this. In the New Testament, uh, yes, it's true. We see a lot of uh, grace and a lot of love and a lot of mercy in the New Testament. But I also think you see a lot of anger in the New Testament. I actually see, think you see the climax of God's anger in the New Testament. You might ask, where? Where do we see that? You know where we see it? We see it on the cross. On the cross is where we see the climax of God's wrath and God's anger. You know, God doesn't cease to be angry for sin, but that anger is poured out fully upon his own son, his own little one, on our behalf. You know, as horrible as a crucifixion was, that's, that's probably not the reason why Jesus is sweating these drops of blood as he's praying, Father, take this cup away from me, if it's your will. When he's talking about the cup, he is talking about the cup of wrath, an allusion to Old Testament imagery. On the cross, the entire wrath of God for all of our sin, all of our sin, is poured out, and Jesus receives it and experiences it as a sacrificial lamb. You know, friends, the, the gospel, it's, it's not supposed to be just kind of this inspirational message that, you know, it 
gives us this good feeling, uh, although it is a, a great message. Uh, it, it's a little bit more concrete than that because God isn't just saying, ah, l- look at these sinners, let me just have pity on them and let me just show them, them grace and, and forgive them of their sin. God is, is, is actually saying this, you know, sin created this debt and it has to be paid and I'm going to send my son to pay that debt so that justice is met. So that justice is met. You know, God's love and God's forgiveness is actually rooted also in his justice. Jesus receives the anger. Jesus receives the wrath. And therefore, friends, uh, we can be spared from it. You know where we see grace? Yeah, on the cross. But you know where we see justice? On the cross. Now, there's a lot of implications to that. And uh, let me just give you one. You know, praying our anger in view of the gospel, one of the things that I think it actually does is it frees us from our hatred and anger so that we can pursue a course of love. Uh, During the civil rights era, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, he led a movement of nonviolence. And African Americans, uh, up until that point, I mean, even now, today, but up in, especially up until that point, they experienced a lot of injustice. Um, you know, if you're somewhat familiar with the history, lynchings and the people who committed those crimes often went free, didn't get in trouble. Segregation, mass imprisonment, a lot of things. They have a lot of reasons to be angry because of the injustice that they've experienced. But here comes Martin Luther King Jr. And he comes and he says, you know, I want to lead a nonviolent movement. Why? Well, if you go to the King Center website, it actually outlines his philosophy of nonviolence, which was outlined in his first book, Stride Towards Freedom. And one of the principles of nonviolence says this, nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice, the nonviolent resistor has deep faith that justice will eventually win. Nonviolence believes that God is a God of justice. I don't know if you see that, but for Martin Luther King Jr., one of the things that actually enables nonviolent movement and a way to not respond with anger and hatred and violence towards your oppressors is actually this deep belief that God is a God of justice. And because God is a God of justice, he is the one who will ultimately deal with evil. He is the one who will ultimately deal with injustice. He is the one who will ultimately make right all things that are wrong in this world. And in a way, he's saying this, I am going to entrust judgment. I'm going to even entrust my anger and my oppression and and the things that I'm experiencing and feeling. I'm going to entrust it to the God of of justice, knowing that he will deal with it righteously and perfectly. And therefore, I can be free from it, and therefore, I can focus on the calling that he has given me to love and to serve not just my friends, but even my enemies. Because I don't have to worry about the one, I don't have to worry about being the one to carry out perfect justice, because the reality of it is I probably won't. When was the last time you were really, really angry? You know the last time I was actually really angry? You might find this a little bit humorous. I was really angry when I read about the story with Equifax. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was so mad, actually. Uh, and the more and more I read about it, I was like, right? I was like, oh, my gosh. These people are so messed up, <laughs> right? My information's probably out there. What could I do? Uh, yeah, maybe I could do something, right? Maybe I could pick at Equifax. Nobody's going to care. <laughs> or I could say, look, God is going to God is going to do his uh, justice one day. He's going to make things right one day. What do you feel when somebody says something deeply racist to you? When was the last time somebody spread false gossip about you? You know, in our country, there's a lot of reason for ang- anger these days. Uh, was it what, what someone tweeted or shared on social media? Was it something that you saw in the news? Was it when some, someone did something that was deeply unfair to you? Was it maybe you have been oppressed yourself and maybe abused yourself? What do we do with that? By the way, I'm not saying you just kind of, oh, let it happen. That's not exactly what I'm saying here. But I'm saying this. this the psalm points to this first step. We should pray. We should pray our anger to God. And as we do, in faith, we are entrusting our anger to God because he's a God of justice. And he will ensure that every sin, every sin, every evil deed, every form of wickedness will one day be paid for, either by the oppressor or by his son. The call for us today because we are a part of that evil, is to put our faith in his son and to know our sin is paid for. And therefore, um, we're free. We're free from our debt. We're free from our burden. We can be free from our anger. And we have the resources to show grace and love, even to the ones that we might have the most hate for. I think history has borne that out through many uh, people who have been oppressed, who have known the gospel, and who have been able to respond with love, nonviolence, service, because they've been able to entrust um, all the injustice that they've experienced to their God of justice. Let's pray together.